following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church in Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. We are continuing in our series, Cinema Sundays. We're looking at themes that our culture exposes in movies and looking at them through a biblical perspective. And we'll continue this morning with The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, which has some pretty amazing diehard followers, which I am not quite one of, so I apologize if I pronounce any of these words wrong this morning. Don't stone me. I'm going to try my best. Now, The Lord of the Rings, of course, was originally an epic fantasy novel by the Oxford professor J.R.R. Tolkien. It was written, actually, as a sequel to his first novel work, which was The Hobbit, which just came out on video a little bit ago. I suggest everyone seeing it. It's an also very awesome movie. But The Lord of the Rings took on such a, a bigger development than probably Tolkien expected, And it was written between the years of 1937 and 1949, most of which was written actually during World War II. And it's the second best-selling novel of all time with over 150 million copies sold, second only to the book. Does anyone know? Novel. It's actually Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, which if you're in a community group, that's going to be one of the questions this week, so you might want to write that down. Tale of Two Cities, I'll give you that one for free. Now, I found it, I found it hard in preparing to do a talk on The Lord of the Rings to keep my talk somewhere under 12 hours, uh, because what we've been really trying to do is give you a plot sum- summary or synopsis of characters what's going on, subplots, and all this. So when we show the clips, you'll have context and understanding what's happening. But with The Return of the King being the third of three in the trilogy, it would take me seriously forever to tell you about every character and what's happening. So hopefully, I mean, you've had since 1955 to read the books, guys. You've had since 2003 to watch the movies. So hopefully you know what's happening. I'll do my best to set up the clips, but uh, I'm not going to tell you everything, so I apologize. Do like a Lord of the Rings trilogy Saturday and sit down and watch them all next week. It'll be awesome. The, uh, the title, Lord of the Rings, refers to the story's main antagonist, the Dark Lord Sauron, who had in an earlier age created the One Ring. I think we got it up behind me. Created the One Ring and the fires of Mount Doom to rule over the other rings of power. Now, Sauron created this ring so he could ultimately control all of Middle-earth. And so, because of the One Ring's power, uh, Sauron obliged to put some of his own power into this One Ring to achieve his ultimate goal of ruling Middle-earth. But unfortunately for Sauron, he was defeated by an alliance of elves and men as a Sealdor chopped off his finger and took the One Ring and claim the One Ring as part of his own family line. And then we see Sauron now transition into the Eye of Sauron, which we'll see for, for the rest of the movie. Now, some years go by, and a sealed door is actually killed by a group of orcs, and the One Ring is lost in the River Anduin. 
Years and years go, go by. I'm trying to give you guys a general recap. 2,000 years go by, and the wandering is found by a common river folk named Deagle. And Deagle and his relative Smeagol are out fishing, and he falls in. And this is actually right where the beginning of the return of the king kicks off. It has this flashback, this uh, dialogue between Smeagol and Deagle. And Smeagol is overcome with just this greed and this wanting for the wandering. Take a look. off the good part sorry <laughs> Smeagol is overcome with this dark evil temptation for this ring this temptation for power or for false confidence and out of this evil he strangles his own relative Deagle to acquire this ring and if you know the story of course you know that this character Smeagol transitioned into the character known as Gollum which will not be making an appearance this morning so sorry 
<laughs> this morning we're, we're looking at this topic of evil, asking this question, what is evil? Uh, what does evil have to do with temptation? Where does temptation come from? What about addictions? Where do they come from? What about all this evil that I, I read in the newspaper or I read online or I see on the TV? Where does all that stuff come from? How can we stand against it? Now, the claim of the New Testament is that just behind all of the goodness in the world is God himself. Behind the evil in this world is the devil. But I think for most people, it's almost difficult to grasp this idea of a spiritual, dark, evil power in our world. Particularly, I think most people have a hard time believing that there's such a thing as a real devil or real demonic spirits. And it probably has to do uh, with so many false images that we have of the devil or demonic spirits. Uh, in, in cartoons, right, in, in television shows and movies, just like we depict God as some old white guy chilling up in the clouds. He's got this big white beard and he's looking down at everyone, shaking his head in disgust whenever we do anything wrong. There's also this false image of the devil as this slightly overweight red guy with hooves and horns and a forked tail, right? So why should we believe in the existence of evil? Why should we believe that the devil is real? Well, first of all, uh, it helps us to make sense of the world around us. Looking at the world, we see evil regimes. We see torture and violence and mass murder and rape and terrorist atrocities, sexual and physical abuse to children even. These things flood our news daily and any kind of theology or worldview that rejects the existence of spiritual forces that are evil has a lot to explain for. There's also the Christian experience. Um, if you're like me, when you've crossed that threshold and chosen to be a follower of Jesus, that didn't necessarily make your life any easier, right? There's still temptations and struggles that we have to deal with. It's as, it's as if before we are Christians, we're going along with the flow of the world. But now it's like a fish trying to swim upstream. We have to live counterculturally in a different way. It's like everyone else lives differently than us. And the third reason to believe in evil and the devil is probably the most important reason, which is the Bible. Jesus himself had an encounter with the devil where he was tempted. The Apostle Paul believed in the existence of spiritual dark forces and evil. He writes about them in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is what Paul writes. He says, Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is saying that there's a spiritual warfare going on around us all the time, and that these evil forces are unseen they're powerful, and that they're definitely evil. Now, in the movie, The Return of the King, there's also a battle against evil 
that's taking place, that's going on against evil rulers and authorities in the seen world, not the spiritual world that Paul writes on in Ephesians. Sauron, the evil force behind it all, unleashes this heavy assault upon Gondor and its people. And this a clip that we're about to watch. We'll see Gandalf the wizard and Pippin, one of the hobbits, at Minas Tirith on the eve of an impending attack from the dark world. Let's take a look. There's no more stars. Is it time? Yes. It's so quiet. It's the deep breath before the plunge. I don't want to be in a battle. But waiting on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. Is there any hope, Gandalf, for Frodo and Sam? There never was much hope. Just a fool's hope. Our enemy is ready. His full strength gathered. Not only orcs, men as well. Legions of Haradrim from the south. Mercenaries from the coast. All will answer Mordor's call. Sauron has yet to reveal his deadliest servant. The one who will lead Mordor's armies in war. The one they say no living man can kill. The witch king of Agmar. You've met him before. He stabbed Frodo on Weathertop. He is the lord of the Nazgul, the greatest of the nine. Minas Morgul is his last. city. Very last place. Full of enemies.
some of you were looking at me. I guess Gollum does make a mini appearance. My bad. <laughs> One of the quotes that Gandalf says there that I, I really like, wasn't that just a good view of evil? It's powerful. <laughs> Gandalf says, Our enemy is ready, his full strengths gathered. Similarly, the devil is ready. His full strengths are gathered against us. And the devil's ultimate aim, Jesus told us, is to completely destroy us. He said that the the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. To steal our joy, to kill our hope, and to destroy our future. But Jesus says that he wants the opposite for us. He, He came to give us life and life to its fullest. Now, in the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, uh, we have a, a depiction of how evil works, of how the devil works against us, his game plan, if you will, to destroy us. And we see that his initial tactic against us is to raise doubt in our mind. Most of us are, are familiar with the story of, of Adam and Eve, the first two humans created by God. And we see that when, when God created Adam and Eve, that he gave them a wide-ranging permission. He said to them that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. They were in the Garden of Eden, and they were free to eat from any tree. That's a lot of trees, right? They had a wide-ranging permission, but God gave them one prohibition, one thing that they should not do. He says, but you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he explains why. There's always a penalty when we cross the line. It says, if you do eat from that tree, that you will surely die. Now, the, the prohibition was there because there are things that God does not want us to experience. He doesn't want us to live through the pain that is uh, around evil. He doesn't want us to know what evil is. He only wants us to know that which is good, which is him. And there's a penalty when we disobey. But watch in which the way that evil operates throughout the story. Uh, the first thing that happens is that the demonic power, which appears as a serpent, uh, ignores, always ignores God's permissions, how God would have us or want us to operate. The serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? Creating doubts. It's the same, same way that uh, the, the devil approached Jesus when he was tempting Jesus. He said, if you really are the son of God, he also uses doubt when he comes at us to lead us toward temptation. He'll say, if you really are a Christian, because if you're not, then that's okay. And if you're not a Christian, then you might as well just do this. You might as well go down this path for your life. Or if you really are a good Christian, because you could be a bad Christian, you could still know the Bible and know who Jesus is, but you just don't have to do what it says. You just be a bad Christian and that's okay. He ignores the permission and he concentrates on the prohibition, which he'll exaggerate He'll distort. And to this very day, his tactics have not changed. When he tempts us, he ignores the permission. And again, there's big permission that God has given us. God says that he has given us all things richly to enjoy. It shows the generosity of God. But Satan doesn't want us to focus on the generosity of God. 
Satan doesn't tell non-Christians about all the good things that you can experience as a Christian, the amazing privilege of a relationship with God, the transformation it can have in your relationships, and the enriching it could have in our lives, as well as all the things that God gives all mankind to enjoy, like relationships and families and the whole of creation, the beauty of arts or literature or music or food or drink or leisure or sleep or football, right? These amazing guiltless, guilt-free pleasures, these permissions that God has given all of us to enjoy. But the devil doesn't want us to focus on that. He only concentrates on a tiny, unimaginative list of prohibitions, the things that we should not be doing, the things that lead toward evil. He says things like, you know, if you, if you become a Christian or if you continue to be a Christian, your life is going to be so lame. It's going to be so lame. You can't, you can't take drugs. You can't be promiscuous. It's just going to be lame. I mean, you're not going to have any fun. It's going to be absolutely miserable. But in reality, I mean, when you think about it, it's such a small list compared to the permissions of God. And the reason that we have those prohibitions is for our best interest, that God is looking out for us and he only wants us to experience true life. He doesn't want to cause us harm. That's why those are set up. Going back to the story of Adam and Eve, the next thing the devil does is he will deny the penalty. We're going to read this one here, Genesis 3, 2 through 5. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree, from it. <laughs> we may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Here's where the devil denies the penalty. You will not surely die, the servant said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and that you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's saying, don't you think you should be the one to decide for yourself? You know, there might, there might be something more. It won't do you any harm. God doesn't know what he's even talking about. You don't want to miss out on this, whatever this is. He boosts our ego. He, he fuels our craving for self-entitled power. Tells us that no one should tell us what to do. Not even God. That we should really be our own gods. Making our own decisions. That we should have our own power of our own wonderings. And Adam and Eve buy into this lie. And actually buy themselves out of all the wonderful permissions that God had created for them within the garden. They eat the forbidden fruit, and it's true that their eyes were open. And what was the result? Was it good? No. The result was shame. Their result was fear. Their result was embarrassment. Now, most of us have things in our past that we're ashamed, that we're embarrassed about. Things that we probably don't want other people in this room to know about. And because of these things that we're embarrassed about, the way that we respond is we put up walls, right? We cover up, we hide ourselves, uh, we don't expose ourselves to other people, we protect ourselves. Much like how Adam and Eve responded here in the story, that they, they hid, they hid in the bushes, covered themselves with leaves. But it was too late. They had already given in to this temptation to the point where it was no longer just temptation, but it was an actual sin, 
And the result was their relationship with each other and their relationship with God had been broken. And I know that in my own life, whenever I, I feel that I've done something wrong or I've sinned against God, the, the last place I want to be, right, is anywhere that I think God's presence is going to be. I don't want to be around my Christian friends. I definitely don't want to go to church. I don't want to be anywhere where I think God's presence is going to be. I'm afraid. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. So I hide. And that's exactly what they did. They were afraid. So they hid. But God is all about restoration. God is the Lord of restoration. And so how does God respond in this moment? He starts by trying to draw them back to himself. And he he calls out to Adam. He calls out, Adam, where are you? It's the agonized cry of a parent whose child has wandered off and had become lost. It's the evidence of broken relationships we see in this, this context, in this exchange of words here between God and Adam. Adam says, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat? Have you done what I have told you not to do? And how does this brave, courageous, original man of God respond, right? He blames his wife. (laughs) The woman that you put me here, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. God asks the woman and the woman blames the serpent. Of course, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Sin had worked its way into mankind and evil had come and destroyed the original relationship as Adam and Eve begin to argue. And we see how sin continues to ruin relationships down through history. Sin can cause breakdown in marriages. Because of sin, there's breakdown in homes. Because of sin, there are breakdown in friendships. We see breakdowns in between countries and civil wars in nations because of this evil that sin that all started back here with Adam and Eve. Lastly, in the story of Adam and Eve, we see a judgment. You know, God says to the servant, the serpent, because you've done this, that there is a penalty that has to be paid. That the serpent did lie. There are consequences. The serpent's lies were not true. He says, it won't do you any harm. Well, it always does. It always does. You will not surely die. It's a lie. The devil's, the devil's tactics are to destroy us by raising doubt in our minds, creating opportunities of temptation, and then accusing us of wrong when we fail. And it's so fascinating to me how this, how this works. This strategy continues to work today just with different temptations toward all people. Now, I think it's important in the story to, to make a distinction between temptation and sin because temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. We're told that Jesus was tempted in every way, every similar way that we are Temptation is usually a thought that's put in our mind. It's a wrong thought or it's an evil thought. And we have a choice whether to accept that thought, to dwell on that thought and act on that thought, or to reject it. Now, Jesus always rejected it. 
one of the tactics that I feel the enemy uses to lead us toward our own destruction is to place a temptation in our mind to immediately accuse us of it. He says, look at you, you have thought this, so by thinking of it, you have already sinned. So you might as well dwell on it and just continue to go down this path. Well, that's not the truth. We need to make this distinction between temptation and sin. It's only sin if we adopt the thought as our own and then act on it. We need to remember that Satan's ultimate goal is to destroy us. That that's where he's leading us to. And he never shows us at the beginning where he's planning on leading us at the end. The person who injects heroin for the first time doesn't think of themselves as a complete heroin addict. But that's the path that it takes you down. Every time we embark on a course of sin, we need to realize that the ultimate aim is to completely destroy our life. That's where evil leads us to. So what then? I mean, do we just have to submit to evil knowing that we're going to be overcome with it all of our days? Is there any way to overcome evil? Do we just have to sit back and take it? No, of course not. The amazing thing is that the war has already been won. Now, the last clip that I want to show you is kind of a bonus two-for-one because I was going between two different scenes that I like the imagery in both of them. One of them was more of an imagery and one was more cool special effects. So I decided just to show you both of them. So these scenes aren't necessarily done right after each other. There's probably, if you're watching the extended DVD, uh, it's probably two hours separated. If you're watching the regular DVD, it's probably an hour separated. Um, but here's two, uh, two cool scenes of evil getting destroyed. Let's watch it.
just love the orb explosion. So cool. That's probably 90% why I chose that one. <laughs> so in the movie, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, evil loses. <laughs> the good guys win. I know. With the destruction of the, the One Ring you saw in the second clip, Sauron, is, uh, his power is permanently removed from him and the, the Nazgul perish and his armies are thrown into disarray and Argon and his forces end up winning the battle, which is a pretty cool scene. And I chose the, the previous clip, it's kind of earlier in the movie, just because of this contrast of light versus darkness, that light is driving out the darkness. It's so so biblical and so, so cool to me just to see this imagery. And it reminded me of a verse in Colossians 1.13. And again, this is the Apostle Paul writing this, the same that wrote Ephesians that we read earlier. Paul writes this, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of, son, kingdom of the Son he loves. I don't know if I have the rest of it on there, but verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Temptation doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Evil doesn't win. Jesus has extended a hand of rescuing to all who wants to be rescued. He can set us free of the addictions of our past. He can set us free of our habits and our sin patterns of our, of our past. Which means we don't have to live in darkness. We can be rescued and live in the kingdom of light. The kingdom of Jesus where Jesus reigns and his goodness dwells for eternity. Now the battle is not over. I mean on the, on the cross, Satan the devil was defeated but he was not destroyed. There will be a time when Satan is completely destroyed when Jesus returns. But now, we live in a time where Satan is a conquered foe, but he's still very present and around. Evil has been defeated, but not destroyed. And if your experience is anything like mine, just because you have a relationship with Christ and you have been rescued by Christ, doesn't mean that you yourself are free from temptation. But we have a Savior who has conquered it. It's a daily process of choosing God's light in this dark world, living under His permissions, and living away from His prohibitions, understanding that His prohibitions are for our best. One day Jesus will return, and there will be no more evil, which is a testament of God's true amazing grace amazing power, and amazing love for all of us.